You may have heard about tech accelerators, but in this episode, we will talk about employment accelerator. Harambi is an employment accelerator which supports skill building and works with various public and private sector partnerships to drive inclusive job creation. Shami also touches upon what is required to drive system change to lead the future of work. Hello and welcome to the Human Works podcast and this is your host Anish Lalchandani. The future of work is uniquely human. On this show I take you on a journey to explore different perspectives to learn, grow and thrive. I'm delighted to welcome Sharmi Surinarayan to the Human Works podcast. She's the Chief Impact Officer at Harambi. Welcome to the show Sharmi. Thanks for having me Anish. It's exciting to be here. Wonderful. Please, can you share with our listeners uh, your career journey and what you have been up to? Sure. Thanks so much. And so, yeah, I mean, it's so funny at Harambe, we have a saying that, you know, your life and career journey is not a linear pathway. And it definitely feels like that when I'm sharing my own story. So maybe just a little bit of background about myself. I was born and raised in India, but also grew up a little bit in Nigeria. And I went to university in the United States. But early on, I think I was really keen to work in the space of education. So I started off in an NGO in the US, in New York, charter school management company, and then pursued graduate degree in education, and then went to work in in one of India's largest NGOs in in education, Pratham, at the time. Early on, it was really interesting to work in that space. It was early childhood uh, development and doing sort of mass literacy testing. So I really got my hands dirty in terms of field work and understanding how, how do you do education at scale? And also, how do you support and partner with the government, which has, I think, become a theme in my life, I think, over the years. But after that, I pursued a, I started a PhD program at Kellogg, decided I was not for an academic career, moved to South Africa with my Kenyan husband, lived there for about 10 years and did a bit of consulting work in mostly human capital, but also, and really importantly, started working with young people in Africa. So I started something called Africa Careers Network at a place called Africa Leadership Academy, connecting young people post the age of 18 to internships and jobs across the continent. And really that was sort of my dream job and has catalyzed my interest in the workplace and getting young people to earning opportunities in Africa. And so at ALA, I think we, we had you know, this belief that you know, talent is universal, opportunity is not. So it was about creating this platform for opportunities for young people and scaling those. So we, I worked with young people from over 40 African countries and then, yeah, was able to sort of connect them to jobs and internships across Africa. And then since then, actually moved to Kenya and started work with Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator, where I work right now. So I lead our work in Rwanda. I also lead our work in systems change, impact and learning. And this is about doing youth employment at scale. And I think, you know, I early on realized how youth unemployment in Africa is a rising challenge, not just on the continent, but actually globally. And if we don't solve it, it doesn't matter sometimes what other problems we might solve. It's like climate change, you know, a huge issue and it leads to inequality. So I was really committed to looking at that issue at scale. So how do you scale solutions for youth employment? How do you partner with the government? How do you create systems change? And so that's where I'm at today. And I'm really fortunate to be working with Harambe and I have a fantastic team and, and group of people that I work with and currently oversee, as I said, our work in systems change. And I can share a little bit more about that as well. Wonderful. I think I, I can see the interesting career journey uh, you had in multiple different experiences, I would say. But you're right, I think there have been a couple of themes in your career journey across like working with government, you know, reskilling at scale and stuff like that. So that, that that's great. 
And I was curious, you know, when you talk about employment accelerator, I haven't heard that ever. So I've heard about tech accelerators. I've heard about talent accelerators in my previous organization, which you run programs, which used to call talent accelerators. So can you unlock a bit more about the context of Africa, overall unemployment situation and challenge and why Harambe and what's the purpose around that? Sure. It's a great question. So Africa's youth unemployment situation is, is a deep, it's a crisis, but it can also be an opportunity and it depends on how you look at it. We've between 12 and 15 million young people across the continent entering the labor market every year, but we have roughly fewer than 3 million jobs. This was pre-pandemic being created every year. So if you think of jobs and livelihoods as a pathway to income security, there's a huge gap. And I think we're also shortchanging our young people because we're in an age of jobless growth and you know jobs that are disappearing in automation. And the, the prosperity that seemed to have been promised for our generation and our parents' generation is not true. So if you just go to school or go to university, it's not indicative. It doesn't mean you will get a job. So that is definitely, it's a devastating realization for many people, but more importantly, it's, it puts people at great, in great precariousness. So I think what we realized at Harambe, I mean, South Africa is, is kind of like it epitomizes the problem. It's a microcosm of that issue. It's the most unequal country in the world. It has the highest youth unemployment in the world. Last statistics, depending on how you look at it, it's between 60 to 75% young people who are unemployed and looking for work. And it's a really shocking situation for a world that is also fairly wealthy. So South Africa has incredible wealth. So how do you address that? And I think the reason Harambe was conceived, which it was born out of an investment vehicle called Yellowwoods, a really progressive holding company that has businesses in various um, industries, including restaurants and hospitality. So you may have heard the, of the chicken brand Nando's uh, with the famous Perry Perry sauce. And you have Hollard, which is a, an insurance company. And you also have telemarketing companies. And when Yellowwoods was running its businesses, it became quickly clear. Firstly, they had a very clear commitment to social causes. But they also saw that in their businesses, there was high entry-level vacancy and high unemployment. And it was really interesting to see both at the same time. And this was a huge market failure and a state failure and other failures. But importantly, a failure to say, if we have so many vacancies and there's so many young people looking for work, how can we not make this bridge happen? So Harambe was born to, to really address that, although it grew and expanded beyond that mandate significantly. But it was very much about young people who are coming out of school. They have competencies. It's just that they may not be able to signal some of what they're doing for the right jobs. So we partnered early on in the first years of Harambe to address that and to accelerate young people's pathways into employment. So hence the name Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator. And we wanted to do a couple of things. One, we wanted to grow jobs. And I'll share a little bit about how we did that, especially with government. And the second issue we wanted to address is, you know, entry-level jobs, you might see this often, I don't know if it's the case in Singapore, but entry-level jobs are often advertised asking for three to five years experience or high, high you know, marks in mathematics, et cetera. When what really is required is a breakdown of the job itself. So what is the job at hand? And what is a young person capable of? So a young person getting into the job market in most cases doesn't have experience. Their grades may not be great, not because they're not capable, but the system may have failed them and it isn't the right signal for the market and for the job at hand. So early on, we broke down what a job meant. So if you took the job of, say, a warehouse packer, they would say they'd need someone with really great math scores. 
And a lot of young people in South Africa didn't have great math scores, so you wouldn't find packers. So we realized, okay, let's break down a job. A packer needs to count in sixes and dozens. So that's a skill that you can actually break down much more easily. It's not about getting great math scores. It's about counting in sixes and dozens. Find a person who's capable and interested in that kind of work and train them to count in sixes and dozens, and you make a match. And I'm, I'm simplifying it quite a bit, but at the end of the day, that's the principle of of making matches inclusive. So I think early on, it was about inclusive matching, inclusive skilling, and inclusive job growth. So we early on would train young people for a job backwards. So you'd place a person into a job and then train them backwards into the job rather than train them and expect a job to happen. So from the very get-go, we were very demand-led. So looking at the jobs first and then the training second. And then over the years, we've really grown. So this past year, I could share more about a systems change work, but we've crossed over half a million pathways. We have a network of 2.2 million young people in our network and creating opportunities across the whole space, formal and informal economy. It's still not enough, which is why we need to do systems change, but we have a huge appreciation for accelerating pathways into employment, hence the name. Um, and so I hope that gives you a bit of context as to what an employment accelerator is. That, that's interesting. And it is also interesting to know and understand, you know, you're right, I think some of the job requirements are so I would say high level and people just put it there. Uh, but the real needs of the skills required for the job may be different rather than the qualifications people are asking for at times. Exactly. And I, I think I find it also interesting, as you rightly said, is place people in the job and then train them backwards. How do you go about that? Because I'm sure there are a number of uh, hiring managers and employers who would possibly not be that comfortable with that approach. So, you know, can you share some of your experiences or insights into some of those challenges? Sure. I mean, it's a great question. I think our early adopter employers were the key partners in that space. And I think throughout partnerships have been key for us. We would work, for example, with you know, a company in the financial services industry, say FNB, First National Bank, which is a big bank in South Africa. They would say that they need tellers. Um, and I think it was an iterative process. We didn't get to a thousand placements on day one. We'd start with a few and then we'd ask them and it was an iterative process as to what does a job need? What does a young person need? And we would land on a few basic match requirements to get a young person through the first gate, so to speak. But the rest, we would be able to train up. So if it was, you know, basic confidence and communications and you know, basic cognitive ability in, on some dimensions. That's sort of what we would say, this gives you a good baseline to start with. Then tell us about what the job actually is. So it's your cashier. So you're greeting people and you're managing accounts and, 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 and managing the cash. So then you sort of backward engineer the training to support that in addition to wraparound soft skills, which is a really critical piece of getting into sustaining into a, a, a job and sustaining employment. So it's about, I think, it's not that we don't have any criteria to start with. We select based on a baseline set of criteria and then train backwards. And I think what's been really interesting for us is we've actually iterated that process over time as well to make it mm -hmm. much more inclusive. So we have different kinds of assessments, not just assessments that are designed for, they're not blanket assessments, they're not generic assessments. They're usually customized for specific sectors, specific jobs. And we go into quite a bit of depth in terms of job families, et cetera, uh, to understand what's required. That's quite interesting. And you're right. I think it's a different way of looking at employment, plus also the, the training and reskilling aspect of it. And you talked about a network of youth. So how do you engage with all of them? And I also possibly see that you have kind of an app to which some of the, some of the training is done. So can you share a bit more about that as well? Sure. Yeah, and that's developed significantly over time. So it doesn't look, today, it doesn't look like what it did a while back. But yeah. yes, we have a, um, what we call a Mobi site, which is Tech Talk, which is I've learned as well, basically a mobile-friendly website. And that's our core 
it's not an app, it's just a website, but it's the core sort of platform with which we engage our young people. And a couple of things to note there is it's it's zero rated and it's free. So it's data free. So we have learned over the years, over the 10 years of our existence, that there are huge barriers to young people accessing jobs. Data is a huge one. Data is a huge cost in South Africa, particularly, but access to internet and smartphones, et cetera, is also that. So we decided to make our, our site data free and free of charge, of course. So you get on, there's no charges to data, you register. There's a couple of questions that come up. Have you volunteered in the past? What is your ID? What is your gender? And then some questions that help prompt you along your employment journey. And then pretty soon, and depending on how, how much information you filled out, including your location, Right now, the Mobi site is able to suggest opportunities for you based on the match that we're able to, to compute. And this is now based on 10 years of data and algorithms and sort of um, being able to actually push people and customize recommendations that didn't happen early on. A couple of other channels through which we engage young people. I would say these are probably equivalent, if not more important. So we have a call center, which is manned by about 200 young people who are themselves formerly unemployed work seekers who are you know, probably the backbone of our organization. They interface with young people on a daily basis, do on an average thousand calls a day, sometimes many, many more than that, depending on opportunities that are on our site. And they, we have both inbound calls with a toll-free hotline for people who don't have smartphones. And then we have an outbound call center to also help address queries and push out recommendations. I would say that our call center is, I mean, that's it, you know, sort of this backbone. And they're able to interact with young people on a daily basis solve questions, you know, I can't log in or which opportunity must I apply to or how, how did the, what are the criteria for this particular job? So they answer sort of specific questions, but they also answer a whole range of, you know, really important human questions. And I think, you know, we had people ranging from a pregnant work seeker asking, should I apply for this job or not? Or someone who's lost a child or a sibling during the COVID pandemic and needs a little bit of just a human touch. So I would say the technical aspect of it is really critical, but our guides are much more than that. And I think perhaps our single biggest offering is that the ability to connect to an unemployed work seeker who has been excluded from the labor market, been invisible, has been unable to get back in because of so many barriers. And in addition to providing opportunities and connecting them and providing sort of the technical support, we're able to provide that human connection, which I think does make a huge difference in our in our very sort of transactional world today. Um, so if you think of it, it's like customer service support for unemployed youth. And I think that has been at the core of our growth and expansion over the past several years in particular. And yeah, so that's how we, we connect our youth and, and they're a very visible and, and integral part of, of our daily work. That, that, that's quite quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, one, there's definitely, I think, digital channels and your website, I think, is important. But I think a lot of people may not even relate to the, the data challenge and issue. I do because I, I quote someone in Kenya and I, I think we do okay. it. I wrote on WhatsApp and I've kind of struggled at times and we get them to the center to do it because of data challenges. Uh, but you're so right. I think, you know, especially uh, youth who's unemployed and because of network challenges, actually that reduces the barrier, that removes the barrier of getting people onto the side. But I think I, I, I kind of, you know, like the idea of the call center far better because you're right. I think it's a human connection. And in some ways, the way I look at it, it's it's they're more like coaches. Yeah, they're trying to solve their technical challenges, but some of these questions are far more around helping them to think a little, little beyond, you know, trying to reduce their kind of biases and queries so that people can actually go and apply to different roles and jobs and use some of the training which is available there. We we use a very specific word for them. They're called guides. And our guides are 
Yeah, I mean, it gives me goosebumps thinking about them. We actually have a, a sort of a, a call every, well, we have two calls, a company-wide call every week. And on Fridays, we have a specific moment, a segment where we celebrate the conversation of the week, where we give a shout out to a guide who has been particularly thoughtful or helpful. And I mean, there's so many, but that's probably my favorite moment of the week where we call this out because it just reminds you and grounds you every day of the reason why you do things and how to actually solve problems for young unemployed work seekers. Nice, nice. And we talked about partnerships a number of times so far in the conversation. So I wanted to understand from you what kind of partnerships you work with and how is it really helping around systems change? Sure. I mean, partnerships is like the DNA of Harambe. And I think, interestingly, Harambe, the word is Kiswahili for we pull together. And despite the fact that we're in South Africa, we chose the word quite deliberately because we want to work together. And I think early on, we realized, firstly, the partnerships are many. We needed to partner with employers, like I mentioned. We needed to partner with the young people, like I mentioned as well. But a very critical early partner and an important one early on was the government. So we realized that, you know, nothing we could achieve was going to be enough if we didn't partner with the government, which was, you know, affecting millions through schools, through institutions, and also through the funding mechanisms. And even in our first year, we partnered with the Jobs Fund, which was an initiative of South Africa's National Treasury through a multi-year partnership in creating jobs. Then we also partnered with the city of Johannesburg, which is the economic engine of the country, really, to partner on specific initiatives to accelerate youth employment. We partner now with the Gauteng provincial government, which is sort of like a state within South Africa. And then now we actually, this past year, launched a massive partnership with the presidency. So we are part of what we call a coalition within the Presidential Youth Employment Intervention, and we're sort of like the anchor platform. So President Cyril Ramaphosa actually launched it in June with Harambe, and the platform is now a national platform. So in some ways, we've actually stepped away from Harambe as a brand. We're now known as SA Youth, and we are powering the national platform for young unemployed work seekers. It gives us great pride to do that because I think it is about, we're now part of a national coalition and task force to address this challenge. And we've done that similarly even in our work in Rwanda. So I think, you know, early on, we partnered with the Ministry of Youth and with the Rwanda Development Board. So I think partnerships in general are fundamental to our approach and work to both achieve scale and to to do more than the sum of our parts. But I think also government partnerships in particular have played a really critical role in our in our evolution. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. And I think it's also in the interest of government to really you know, reskill and upskill uh, the youth to bring in, kind of, you know, bring into the workforce because in one way it's like economic opportunity lost when, when people are out of, out of the jobs. Plus, second, you're possibly not able to really develop the economy and different sectors as it should go across. Plus, you know, different, I would say, corporates coming in, they would really like to look at the talent and skills pool and that kind of gets uh, ready as, as people kind of go into multiple jobs and get trained for it. Absolutely. I mean, so just a, a specific example of partnerships that work in a fairly different sense, because, you know, they're skilling and training and matching. Mm-hmm. We've had a really incredible success story with partnership in terms of job creation to be inclusive. And I think that's something that's really worth calling out because we found early on that, you know, obviously South Africa is a unique country. Well, sometimes in some senses, but you know, it was high, heavily extractive based. So if you think of the mining industry, et cetera, a lot of jobs are diminishing and we're not necessarily getting a similar manufacturing boom like the rest of the world did. So we don't have we've basically decades of jobless growth. So it was really critical for us to say, where are the jobs? I mean, we can match people to existing opportunities, but we do need to create new jobs. So we quite early on decided we needed to partner with the government and choose an industry that was growing and had promise, which was the global business services industry, GBS, mostly outsourcing, sometimes call center, but also other kinds of outsourcing as well. 
And you probably are familiar with it from both Singapore and, and South Asia and East Asia. But there, were, there was a growing need for, for outsourcing work in the, on the African continent. So the particular success story, which is worth mentioning, is we galvanized and partnered with the sector intermediary body, the business process enabling South Africa body together with the government, the Department of Trade and Industry in, in South Africa, to design a roadmap for job creation at scale. So specifically the GBS sector. And we partnered with them to create a roadmap to over half a million jobs in the next 10 or so, 10 to 15 years, of which we've created 50,000 already. But the interesting story and the reason we were able to sort of help in that space is that we were both able to convene people that perhaps may not have gotten together before, but also help push a mandate for inclusive job creation. So we said, can we design tax incentives for companies that are bringing in new jobs to hire young people and young people that are excluded? And that was sort of like a really fantastic opportunity for us to say, and, and you know, these, these industries in particular are also low barriers to entry for young people. So call centers are generally easy sort of pathways into employment. So it was a really triple win on, on many levels. So new jobs, inclusive jobs, jobs with low and barriers to entry. And we're so excited to say of the sort of 50,000 plus jobs, you know, close to 90% of them are for young people and well over 60% are for, for women. So we are hoping that that template, that model of partnership can not only solve this sort of skilling and matching crisis, but it's also about job creation at scale with inclusion at the core. So are there any other sectors besides like GBS, which are coming up or where do you see there's a possibility of job creations? Are there any other sectors or areas? Definitely. I mean, GBS encompasses so much. We're definitely looking at the digital space as well. Digital is a broad space, but we're looking, we actually did some research last year to say, okay, what do you mean when you say you need digital jobs? And I think what we realized is you have to really drill down. And yeah. so for example, to be very, very specific, we're looking at software testing and you know Microsoft desk support or very specific or backend support for Amazon web services, et cetera. So those kinds of jobs are growing. We are making a bet on some of the other smaller industries as well, not smaller, but you know, growth industries in the sense. So for example, in, installation repair and maintenance, you know, there's a huge artisanal class in, in South Africa, but we do need to grow jobs and pathways into employment for young people. There are some mm-hmm. big gaps. So for example, are you a licensed plumber? A licensed plumber gets so much more opportunity, but licensing itself is expensive and difficult. So what we realized is it's both about job creation and seeing the growth potential, but also making sure that you understand what the barrier is. And I think the barriers are significant in some spaces. They're not so significant in some others, and it's about investment in that space. So care work, for example, is another space. So early childhood development, you know, investing in that space can create half a million jobs as well in the next five to 10 years. So we have a couple of different sectors that we're looking at. There's priority sectors that we partner with the government on, including manufacturing, IRM, like I mentioned, digital, tourism and hospitality, although that has been really difficult during COVID, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And talking about COVID, uh, has any of your plans shifted, changed with the pandemic? You know, what, what's been it like in the last 18 months or so? I don't know whose plans has not been shifted over the past 18 months. So yes, absolutely. So I'm just laughing because of the extent. I remember we're so yeah naive, I think, in April of last year, we had planned to launch this partnership with the presidency and launch walk-in center support for job centers across the country in five pilot sites in South Africa. And of course, we couldn't do that. So we pivoted entirely online. So we you know, made our Mobi site data free instantly because obviously that was a huge bottleneck. Then we 
shifted all of our work that we would have done in person online. We stopped doing some of our work and we actually accelerated our systems change work significantly. And by that, I mean, you know, we we do less training and skilling ourselves now, but rather create this platform through which other skilling and training partners can both put their products and services, but also match opportunities at scale. So, and then encouraging other people to do more inclusive hiring at scale. And then the other piece that we shifted into dramatically and aided by the pandemic is public stipended programs. So job creation in a pandemic is limited. And South Africa had probably one of the worst lockdowns in the world in terms of its uh, severity and job loss impact. And so there were many stimulus programs that were designed specifically to help get young people working again. What's different about this past year, though, and perhaps because of SA Youth, is that you we were able to connect young people to short-term jobs, which has happened historically. South Africa is a very generous sort of welfare state. You know, there's got a lot of public works programs, et cetera. But you don't really have visibility of both how you recruit and then young and sort of how you recruit and monitor young people after they've been in the program. So it's usually a one-stop shop. You get a job, you dig a ditch, you you know clean a garden, and that's it. We pathwayed over uh, 300,000 uh, teacher assistant jobs in November alone in last year. And the exciting thing is that we have visibility of those young people on our platform still. So we can suggest other opportunities based on their experience. And then also they can remain on our platform and connect them to other kinds of work. And we're actually doing a second wave of the same kind of recruitment this just now for another 300,000 in the same program. And we're trying to do that with more public works program. These are all COVID programs specifically. So it's economic relief programs. But what we're hoping to do is because of the data, because of the platform, because of the visibility that we have for young people, we can both progress young people to their next pathway and importantly suggest where points of intervention are most needed. So where are young people falling off? What is needed to get them into the next job? How do you fund the next job? Because these are stipended programs from public coffers, and there's a lot of pressure to say you, you can't have so much um, debt and fiscal strain, but you need to have some return on investment, which is the research that my team is actually busy with right now to say, how do you then demonstrate return on this kind of inclusive and efficient hiring for public works? So those are the kinds of pivots we did during COVID. I mean, it's they were massive. Um, we also just had a two-month stint where we actually used our idle call center capacity to support the unemployment insurance fund for the government as well. So, I mean, we just, we plugged in wherever we could, but I think that goes back to our point around partnerships to say, you know, it, it takes every single party to actually address the crisis because the recovery is going to, to be on all of us. And I think, as you rightly say, it's a systems change. You need an ecosystem, you need partners, you need collaborators to come across. And yeah, at times you have to be agile and pivot uh, strategies, but I really like the way you're looking at using data and technology to understand what's changing, what's going on. And people who are on the platform and their jobs or internships will come to an end. How do you engage them further? So exactly. that, that's going to be a very interesting way as, as I think uh, the work evolves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we, we talked about a number of you know, challenges which are there. So what are the things which you would really like to shift and change? You know, if you had a magic wand, what would you really like to change in this space? Okay, that's a great question. I mean, so a couple of things. I would really encourage inclusive hiring practices with employers. I think if one thing we could do universally easily is to drop unnecessary barriers. So drop degrees when they're not necessary. I mean, some jobs you need degrees, absolutely. But drop work experience experience requirements for, for young people, especially the entry level. And then look at the barriers that young people face to work and actually address those rather than complaining that you don't have the talent. Because all of our data shows that, you know, there's a return on investment if you hire inclusively and there's less attrition and more attrition. So there's definitely an employer advocacy piece to say, 
become more inclusive with these specific mechanisms. I think with the labor market in general, one of the things that I would say is we're not going to actually, we're, we're, we're entering a space which is so unknown and uncharted in terms of the future of work. And there's a lot of talk about the future of work with the fourth, fourth industrial revolution, automation, et cetera. But there isn't a sufficient, I would say, coordinated approach to address this across government, employers, civil society. And I truly think that this is going to require something that we're going to have to shift paradigms than we've ever known before. We've set up all of our institutions for an industrial era. We've set up institutions like school, university, skilling colleges, even job boards for industrial era. And that has to shift significantly. And I think it's going to require collective reimagining. So if I had a magic wand, it's that people would actually wake up to that reality to say it is about redesigning institutions. It is about looking at micro-credentials, looking at short, cheap, fast credentials. I have a mantra that says, you know, skilling should be short, cheap, and efficient. Learning is lifelong. And how do you design institutions for that? Government needs to think about those things and actually make specific investments in industries that are receptive in those spaces to do that. So if I did have a magic wand, I would actually say that, you know, let's collectively reimagine this future because it has to, to work. It is, it's going to require a huge shift from what we've known in the past and COVID has actually given us an, an opportunity to do so. So what is that opportunity? How do we actually step into it, lean into these, these new avenues for reimagining the pathways into work at scale? And maybe just one last thing is, I think we need to also understand that work is not a job. And we need to understand what work is much more cleverly and much more expansively. And, you know, there's all kinds of work there is. And it's about what skills and tasks and competencies you bring from that experience to your next work rather than thinking of this is how you get into a job and stay in a job. So rewarding and seeing and valuing work of all kinds is very fundamental to the work that Harambe does. So young people are, unemployed people are not idle. They're working, but they're just, they don't have a job. So I think for us, reconciling that discrepancy is really important through really innovative approaches in terms of signaling skills, but also with employers and government recognizing the same. They are challenging. They are complex, as, as you rightly kind of acknowledge it. But you're right, in some of the work with, with employers, that can move on a faster scale. The future of work and looking and reimagining the entire landscape from education to you know youth employment to next level, that is challenging and complex in, in many ways. Yeah. And, in, and, and I think, you know, that's where you need an ecosystem. So I just wanted to check also with you is, is there any way people who are outside, you know, South Africa, can they support the cause and mission of, you know, Harambe? Is there any way people can support? Thanks for that question. And I think supporting the work of Harambe is perhaps really amplifying the message more than anything else. I mean, mm -hmm. we currently, you know, aren't set up necessarily to receive sort of, we're set up as a social enterprise and a nonprofit. We're not necessarily set up to receive financial contributions of any kind. But I think what would be really powerful is to amplify the message about, firstly, the world of work is changing. It's no longer linear. And, you know, enabling young people to get into work quickly and thinking of putting the young person at the heart of it mm. and then demand first and using technology as an enabler, having that message in whatever work they are. So, and then reading the drum of inclusion at every level. So if you are hiring, hire inclusively. What are the barriers that you are putting up? If you're an employer, how data heavy is your job site? You know, that matters to a young person or how far, how much transport is an average person spending on to get to your work? And having visibility of that and making sure that you're understanding your approach and which barriers that you unknowingly set up and addressing those, I think, are really critical. And then perhaps lastly is around the future of work piece. 
I think, you know, this McKinsey report, which is often cited, I think it's between 70 and 80% of us, all jobs will be impacted by automation, but at two different degrees and levels. So you and I are going to be out of some elements of our work as well, as much as a young person is. So understanding that we are all together and we're actually solving for all of us, not just for an excluded person. And I think for me, that has to come, you know, it has to be at the heart of whatever we do. So I think what we realize at Harambe, which is we believe that youth are the solution, not the problem. And so we do firmly believe in their potential and design for inclusion at the core. So if that's a message that can be amplified by other people across the world and addressed in their daily work, that's, I think that's the way to contribute to our work. Makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Shami, it's been lovely speaking to you. How can our listeners reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sort of active on LinkedIn. So my profile is sharmi.sarinarayan on LinkedIn. And then I'm also on Twitter. So you can catch me there. My handle is at Sharmadillo. And then I also have my our Harambe's uh, Twitter handle is also Harambe Work for Work with the number four. I can post those perhaps as well on, on social media and tag this podcast. So we'd look we'll forward to reaching out to everyone. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. We'll add all these details in the show notes as well. But it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Such a pleasure. And yeah, go well. Thank you for your interest and for the amazing work you do on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.